Please open God's Word with me to the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 2. This is now our fourth message in our new series in the Gospel of John, and uh, He has been telling us a lot about who Jesus is. But today, He shows us who Jesus is because we get to see His first miracle. Now, lots of ink has been spilled speculating about what these uh, verses could possibly mean, but rather than entertaining all of the what-ifs, we are going to focus on the main purpose of this particular text, and that is that Jesus is our bridegroom God. The main application is that we need to trust Him to lead us that Jesus is our bridegroom God, and so we need to trust Him to lead us. Now, I have three points, if you're taking notes, that we're going to learn, first of all, about the bridegroom's uh, mercy, uh, second, about the bridegroom's miracle, and lastly, about His magnificence. So, mercy, miracle, and magnificence. Please follow with me, uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is the Word of our God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Weddings are amazing. In every culture of the world, they are one of the most exciting events that can happen in people's lives. Now, it's a great time of celebration when two families and their friends come together to witness the creation of a new family. We recognize that God created the institution of marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Now, the Bible actually begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve. The Bible also ends with a wedding, Jesus and His church, right? And now we see here Jesus' ministry began with a wedding, Now, the marriage metaphor in the Bible is one of the richest metaphors that we have for us to understand our relationship with God. 
Now, when ministers officiate weddings, they often refer to this particular text regarding Jesus' presence and His blessing upon the wedding in Cana, but there is so much more going on in this text than just the fact that we can affirm the institution of marriage as being from the Lord. John wants us to understand who Jesus is. And it's very clear from this text that Jesus is indeed our bridegroom, God. But what exactly does that mean? Well, we're going to learn, first of all, that our bridegroom, God, is merciful, right? We're going to learn about His mercy. Verse 1 again says, "'On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples.'" Now, many people wonder, why does he reference the third day in that particular place? And it's probably something as simple as the fact that, as Pastor Jeff talked about last week, that it took about two days for Jesus to call uh, Philip and Nathaniel. And so, on the third day, Jesus was in Cana. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited, and as along with her son and the disciples, and this was most likely someone that Mary was related to. But then the unthinkable happened. If you've ever planned a wedding, you know there are quite a few details involved, and you have to plan for a lot of things. Many of them you're not totally sure about. How many people are coming, you hope you know. But in this particular case, uh, we don't know why. It's pointless to speculate, but the fact is the wine ran out. And when the wine ran out, it says in verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me. My hour has not yet come. Now, you have to recognize that Mary is feeling the intense embarrassment and not wanting this young couple to start life with this public embarrassment. And so, she knows that Jesus has the power to help. But notice also that she does not instruct Jesus. She merely points out a fact. They have no wine. Now, Catholic theologians construct a very blasphemous doctrine regarding Mary having the power to change Jesus' mind. You know, if He doesn't intend to do something, you know, if you pray to Mary, then, then she can guide Him to do what you need Him to do, and that is certainly not what this text is teaching. But we can't err on the other side of that spectrum either and recognize that because uh, Jesus said woman, right? Some people take that as a strong rebuke uh, to Mary manipulating Jesus, and that's not the case at all. Woman was just a simple uh, reference to an older woman, and He says the very same thing, uh, for example, uh, from the cross itself when He was trying to show His mother mercy uh, on the cross. It says in John 19, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple John took her to his home. Now, though Jesus was on the cross facing the worst pain any human being could ever experience in the history of the world, he was still focused on giving mercy to his mother and making sure she had someone to care for her after his death. Calling her woman was not rude, as it might be uh, sounding today if we said it like that, but it's just a way, as I said, of addressing an older woman. But the most interesting thing that Jesus says to Mary at this point is, my hour has not yet come. 
As we, dis- we will discover as we go through this uh, gospel of John, this theme of Jesus' hour, he says all different things about it, but he says an hour is coming, or he says my hour has not yet come. He says it multiple times, but then in John chapter 12, we get to hear these wonderful words, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He told Mary that his hour of glory had not yet come. The hour would come when Jesus would be the bridegroom at the marriage feast of the Lamb in glory, but that hour is not yet. And so, rather than us seeing the fullness of His glory as we do in the book of Revelation, we just get a glimpse of that glory as Jesus unfolds for us progressively through His miracles that glory. And so, as we uh, think about the bridegroom being full of mercy, we see in verse 5, His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Now, she knew that her son is Messiah, right? And she knew it's not about her will, it's about His will. The servants may not know Jesus at all, and so with the encouragement of an older woman, they may be more likely to receive Jesus' instruction as a mere guest. But before we get to the actual miracle, we need to understand our own need for mercy. And so, considering this first point about the bridegroom's mercy, I want to illustrate and then apply that point to our lives before we move on to the miracle. We may sympathize with this young couple and recognize the embarrassment that they face and their need for help, but do we really grasp our own intense need for mercy for the bridegroom giving it to us? Well, in Ezekiel 16, our bridegroom gives to His people Israel an amazing amount of mercy. Now, we think about uh, the way that God is revealing Himself in that text, and it is so graphic. I don't even want to read the first few verses of that chapter because of our mixed company. I mean, today, we face the horror of abortion. In ancient times, it was called exposure, where they would just leave a child in an open field. And so that is where God found us. We, as the people of God, were left in an open field for the elements and for the beasts, but God found us. He rescued us. He gave us life. He even gave us abundant life. And then Ezekiel says in verse 8, when I pa- or God says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Right? There is this marriage theme of God wedding His people, right? Having a covenant of marriage. And the verses that follow show the magnificence and the amazing uh, grace and mercy that God showered upon His bride. And yet, unfortunately, we kept looking for love in all the wrong places. Our idolatry, trying to find satisfaction in something other than God, is called adultery in the Scriptures, because of this covenant of marriage that we have 
with our God. And so when we see the fact that in the book of Hosea, he also demonstrates that we as sinners have a very difficult time with trust and commitment. Now, though the Lord redeemed us from death, we question His goodness. Now, though the Lord provided all that we have, we doubt His love. Trust is the main application of this particular text. Our bridegroom demonstrates that He is indeed trustworthy. And so, we must trust His mercy to lead us. Now, Jesus demonstrated godly wisdom in what He did at the wedding in Cana by showing them this type of mercy. We have received that mercy ourselves, and so we will wisely respond to that mercy by then sharing it with others. And we have three different ways that we can show that mercy to other people. First of all, we read about mercy covering over shame in the book of Proverbs chapter 10. Hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses. Parents, we need to recognize that we should not be nitpicking every single thing that our children do wrong, right? That none of us appreciate having all of our faults highlighted. Now, there are times when love just needs to cover over our multitude of sins. Jesus covered the shame of that poor couple. Nobody knew what happened, right? It was even better than they anticipated it to be with the wine. And so, Jesus covering that shame demonstrates that great love, right? Well, verse, uh, Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And so, there's the other side, right? First, I talked about parents. Now, children, it's, it's your turn, right? When we think about the fact that there are times that mom and dad have given you mercy, and unfortunately, you took that as, ooh, I got away with it. I'm going to try that again. And that's what he's talking about here is repeating a matter, right? You got mercy the first time, but instead of receiving that and responding in repentance, you say, ooh, I got away with it. I'm going to do that again. And so we see that there's a time that parents will then have to restrict your freedom because you're not showing yourself trustworthy. And so we see here that uh, we have not demonstrated ourselves as trustworthy, and so the Lord has to keep a closer eye on us as well. And then the third part, then in 1 Peter 4 verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So, you see this theme in the application of mercy about covering of shame. Every single sinner experiences different aspects of shame. And so, how can we, uh, as the people of God, be a part of covering shame? Let you be the one where gossip ends. When it comes to your ears, be the one to stop it and ask the person if they've addressed this with this other person. Be the one to correct the person who is spreading gossip. Be the one that it stops with as opposed to multiplying the shame of a brother or sister made in the image of God. God's mercy is so powerful and so trustworthy, but there's many times we can't just hear it. We actually need to see it. And so that's what we have next in the bridegroom's miracle. First, we saw His mercy illustrated and applied it three ways, and now we see His 
miracle. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, many, many wonder why John references the original purpose of these sown jars, that they were for the rites of purification. I thought it was interesting that John Calvin points out that the Jews commonly went overboard in their rites of purification because it was an outward display of their personal holiness. And so the irony is that Jesus used these very large stone jars to demonstrate mercy to the humble instead of bringing glory to those who are proud of their own obedience. Now, the most likely reason Jesus used these large jars uh, to make into wine was, first of all, there was a need for it, right? We don't know how many guests, maybe it ran out of of, of uh, wine because there was more people than they anticipated. We don't have the actual reason, but Jesus did not just transform one cup of wine or of water into wine, right? That, that could be guilty of it looking like just sleight of hand, right? Oh, yeah, he just kind of switched one cup. When you have 150 gallons, right, multiple large uh, uh, jars uh, uh, or, uh, you know, it's, it's just overwhelming, Uh, for that miracle to occur. And so you can't overlook that. Jesus made 750 modern-day bottles of wine, right? That's a lot of wine. Now, the abundant power of Jesus' miracle is what grabs our attention. And that's the very purpose of miracles in the Scriptures, right? That God demonstrates His glory by showing His power, by altering and, and working against the laws of nature, right? To show something that was not natural. It was supernatural. And so, in His showing of supernatural love, all of the miracles also are miracles of mercy. They are showing mercy to sinners, And so, if we understand miracle in its right uh, biblical context, then we would also say that childbirth is not a miracle. And you're like, what? Right? Technically, it's not. It's amazing. It's, It's a wonder the way that God has designed childbirth, but it's not technically a miracle because it's the most natural thing that happens. A virgin birth, however, right, in Jesus's case, right? That's a miracle because you're suspending the laws of nature to bring about uh, God's purposes. And so, when, we, when God uses miracles, He's getting our attention, changing the laws of nature to point us to His power. And then Jesus said in verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So, they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, this, this was likely a wedding of the poor, and yet there were still patterns that existed just like the weddings of the rich. There would still be a master of the feast. And so he was given the honor to try the wine before it was distributed. The master did not have, though, a key point of information that the servants did have. Jesus had turned water into wine. But the servants didn't taste it themselves, right? That would be quite bold if they tried, but they didn't. And so you got to imagine, they're taking this wine to the master, and they're super curious. They can't wait to see the master's reaction. Well, Jesus always demonstrates His miracles 
in unexpected places. For example, he was born in a stable, not in a palace as the king. He began his ministry in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. I mean, if we were the ones claiming to be Messiah, right, we would start right at the top. Hey, the king is here, right? And that's how we would probably go about it, but not Jesus. He revealed himself to the poor and to the common. He revealed his miracles to the servants before the master. He explained his parables to the disciples, and the Jewish leaders had to figure them out for themselves. This demonstrates that the power belongs to God and not to man. I mean, if if he started with the rich and the powerful, they would probably shift credit to their own power, to their own wealth, to their own prestige. No, God starts with the weak so that he can demonstrate his power. That is an amazing theme that we find all throughout the Scriptures, that of God's power working through miracles, it is to be demonstrated in times of our weakness. And so whether a person is crippled or whether a person is blind, whatever the weakness is, God demonstrates His power through weakness. And He said exactly that to the Apostle Paul as Paul is just wrestling with the Lord about why God has given him this thorn in his flesh. And yet God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds saying, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. God had Paul's attention. Does he have your attention? How much do you trust God's power to overcome your weaknesses. How much would you trust God to display His power in your weaknesses? Well, we've already learned that His mercy was shown to an outcast child, but what about His miraculous power demonstrated in our personal weakness? We hate seeing our own weaknesses. We hate the idea of them being exposed to multiple people. And yet, as those who have been changed by Jesus Christ, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been loved by a heavenly Father, as those given immeasurable mercy, you don't need to fear the shame of your weaknesses being exposed. Christian, you don't need to fear the shame of your weaknesses being exposed. Now, we should be the ones to cover other people's weaknesses. That's loving one another. But we have to be willing to let our own be on display. But No, no, not even on display. Paul says we need to boast in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. That reaction is supernatural. That's not natural. The natural thing to do is to just pull pull ourselves away and to, to hide and to cover. That's the natural response to our shame. And yet, Paul is saying that in my weakness, I will see the glory of God displayed in this sinner's life. Brother and sister, what shame do you carry in your life? 
Our Redeemer God has designed every aspect of your life, and you can trust that He is your sovereign. Now, I'm very aware that in your moment of hurt, you certainly didn't feel His delight. But this broken world and our broken hearts can be redeemed by a good God so that, there's a purpose to it, that Paul says that, our, that his comfort, so that we can comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's the purpose of us going through some horrible experience that God would redeem it so that then we can meet other people who, have, who are in the early stages of that horrible experience, and with the comfort that we have been given, we can then share it with them. And so the abundance of God's power is displayed in our lives by the quantity of His power being poured out but it's also displayed in the quantity of the miracle of the amount of wine Jesus made. But it's also not just the quantity, but it's demonstrated the glory of the bridegroom God is also demonstrated in the quality of the wine, as we will see lastly, the bridegroom's magnificence. First, we saw His mercy, second, His miracle, and lastly, His magnificence. Look at the end of verse 9. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And I can just see the faces of those servants waiting to see that master's reaction. And I bet the doubting servant was like, you know, what? It's just water. How can he say it's the best wine he's ever tasted, right? The other servant's like, who is this guy, right? Who can do that? Right, the master of the feast helps us to see that the quality of the wine that Jesus made, okay, it's not ripple, okay, it is Chateau de Kim. It is the best of the best. Now, I must point out that the master's reaction does prove that Jesus did not turn water into grape juice, because no one's ever heard of serving the good grape juice before serving the bad grape juice. No, that's not what it says. We know that you will serve the good wine before the mediocre wine. Now, notice that the master of the feast called over who? The bridegroom. Why? Because it's the bridegroom who is responsible. And yet, in this text, he is not the one who did it. It's the true bridegroom. Our bridegroom, God, was responsible for bringing what was needed. He took the place of the weak and the poor bridegroom because he didn't have enough. None of us have enough. We need Jesus to take our place. And so our bridegroom, God, shows his abundant grace. But the Lord's generous grace does not come only in large quantity, but also in top quality. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy, right? The Bible regularly illustrates using metaphor. And so in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord uses the metaphor of His people as a vineyard. The Lord labored well to create a perfect vineyard, and yet 
This perfect vineyard yields only wild grapes and sour wine. What is it about our rebellion that is demonstrated in that wild grape and that soured wine? Well, as Pastor Dan read from Amos chapter 9, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The bridegroom is also the vine dresser. He cares for his people with great tenderness. And even out of wild grapes, because of his, he mercifully and miraculously and magnificently makes sweet wine. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's the application, right? That we would trust in this. Jesus. Now, God dis- displays his glory in this first miracle, right? People can try to explain away the miraculous, but we see it for what it is. Jesus fulfilled prophecy as our bridegroom God, and therefore we must seek his glory by trusting him. The disciples saw what happened. They already trusted Jesus, but now their trust was even deeper, and they understood this is the Messiah. We knew it. We weren't sure, but we can see He is the Messiah. He is the one to restore the fortunes of Jacob. All of these prophecies are coming true, but they only have the Old Testament. We also have the New Testament where we know that Jesus is the bridegroom God of the church, and heaven itself is described as the marriage feast. Will you be there? Are you captivated by the mercy, the miracle, and the marvelous, magnificent nature of Jesus revealed in the Scriptures? Have you trusted in Him? Well, it says in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to them, or He said to me, these are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, trust your true bridegroom God, because He delights in you. Amen. Father, as we are so thankful for the beautiful marriage theme that we have all throughout the Scriptures and how this even comes into fruition as you, Lord Jesus, begin to demonstrate the power and the love and the care that you have for your bride. Lord, thank you for your mercy that covers over all of our sin. Thank you for your grace that is paid for our sin by your perfect life, your death on the cross, and your resurrection that we can have eternal hope. That as we trust in you alone, 
we are set free from whatever sins have happened to us and whatever sins we have committed, that we are not defined by our guilt or by our shame, but we are yours as those that you have purchased and are one who delights in. And we thank you for these things and that we can rejoice in your goodness. We pray in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.